we will be considering verses 17 to verse 34. I'm glad we ended with that song of how the love of God, the majestic love of God humbles us and transforms us. Because really, that is the goal of the signs of the gospel. They are meant to drive home the reality of God's infinite love that is beyond our understanding. And it is a necessary thing in light of our challenge as we live in this world. Last week, we talked about our task and privilege of adorning the gospel through lives of luminous goodness. Sounds great. It sounds simple. But I think we all understand it is extremely difficult and completely exhausting because we are swimming against the tide while battling against our own continuing sinfulness. Thankfully, our Lord understands our struggle because He lived on this earth as a fully human being. He experienced the struggle Himself. And that's why He gives us the Lord's Supper. It is a banquet that He has prepared for us to strengthen us to walk in His footsteps. And so here is our church's affirmation on baptism and the Lord's Supper. We call them the signs of the gospel. Among the things commanded by Christ, there are two visible signs of the gospel which He instituted for observance by His followers until He returns. One, as a sign of Christian initiation, and the other as a means of ongoing nurture. Baptism is the immersion in water of a confessing believer designed to occur at the beginning of Christian experience as the formal means of response to the gospel and initiation as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The act is a powerful symbol of union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection with all that this implies about our death to our old life and our spiritual rebirth. Now, in April, we saw Scott being baptized. On the 14th of August, we are going to have the privilege of witnessing another brother being baptized. Uh, his name is Jephthah. He, is, he was here on a three-month internship and he's going back to India on the 20th of August. And he came to us last Sunday and said, I'd like to be baptized before going back to India. Um, so we're looking forward to that. He is hoping to finish his undergrad um, this year and then to come back to Guelph in 2023 to take up his master's at Guelph. So looking forward to that. All right. Now, number two, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal in which believers together partake of bread and wine, I wish, <laughs> as a tangible reminder of the body and blood of Christ, which were offered up for our salvation. By this act of eating and drinking, the whole community of believers proclaims the Lord death, Lord's death until he returns. 
Now, these signs of the gospel are the sacred drama God has given us to perform regularly in our worship. We don't do drama on stage because we already have a better drama, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, in the New Testament, people expressed their faith in Jesus through baptism in his name. And that's why Peter would refer to conversion in terms of baptism. You see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38, where he tells the people who, the, the, his fellow Jews who said, who were cut to the heart by the gospel message, they were asking him, what shall we do? Peter's response is, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That was to signify their trust and submission to Jesus, recognizing that he is the long-awaited Messiah. And he explains that a bit further in 1 Peter chapter 3, where it talks about baptism, which saves you, not as the washing of dirt from the body, but as the appeal for a clean conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It tells us that apart from faith in Christ, produced by the Holy Spirit, getting baptized is just getting wet. It doesn't even clean you because you're not using soap. Rather, baptism is a visible sign that points to the invisible reality that has taken place in the, in the life of a person because of the work of the Spirit. That through faith, produced by the Spirit, the Spirit has united that believer to Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So our sins have been forgiven. We have been made alive to God, and the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us. We have become part of the new creation. And so baptism would also signify our union with the church. And baptism then functions both as a sign and a seal in that God is marking us as His. We are no longer our own. God owns us. We are set apart to God to serve His purposes. And so it was very appropriate that we sang, I surrender all. That is the appropriate response to the reality of our baptism, our union with Christ. And baptism functions as a means of grace as, we are, as the Spirit impresses these wonderful truths upon us. Now, if baptism is a one-time event signifying our entrance into the new creation, the Lord's Supper is an ongoing means of grace and fellowship between Christ and the believer. So if we would compare baptism to your wedding day, the Lord's Supper would be your anniversaries and special dates that strengthen the relationship. And to understand how this happens, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. And interestingly enough, Paul has to talk about the Lord's Supper not because the Corinthians understood it well, precisely because they weren't practicing it properly. 
he is correcting the selfish actions of the Corinthian believers during the Lord's Supper by explaining what the Lord's Supper really is about. And so it serves as an introduction for our study of 1 Corinthians next week because it gives us a window into the kind of problems that Paul was addressing in the church of Corinth, and it shows us how Paul addresses those problems. And really, it comes down to Paul pointing them back to the gospel. So let's read chapter 11, verse, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. When I come, I will give further directions. So let's begin by recognizing that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper by transforming the Passover meal. You see that in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. It is grounded in history. Not simply in the history of Jesus and his disciples. It is that. But Jesus was pointing further back to the most significant event in the life of Israel, the Passover. It was meant to commemorate the Jews' deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And as we read earlier, 
It is called the Passover because God killed the firstborn child of the Egyptians and passed over the Israelite firstborn who are identified by the sacrificial blood on the doorposts. And so the Passover was to them a life-defining reminder of God's gracious salvation in the past that pointed them forward to the promise of a greater deliverance that the Messiah would accomplish. And Jesus, being the Messiah, instituted the Lord's Supper, comparing himself to the Passover lamb who died in the place of the Israelites' firstborn children. And he was saying to his disciples, he was giving himself up as the sacrifice and substitute of his people so that our sins would be forgiven. And in so doing, he would deliver us from our slavery to sin and from our guilt and condemnation. And where God brought the Israelites into covenant with him at Sinai, Jesus brings us into the new covenant by his death. And so in light of that, the Lord's Supper functions as a sign because it points us back to Jesus and his death on our behalf. It is, according to our Lord Jesus Christ, a reminder, a remembrance. Verse 24 and 25. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And it says something unfortunate about you and me. Our Lord Jesus is infinitely glorious. And yet such is our sinfulness that we easily get distracted and make idols in our hearts. That Jesus has to institute a remembrance means that we are forgetful. We tend to take for granted the grace that God has given us. And when we forget, we begin to be unfaithful. We start complaining about his dealings with us. We start questioning his character. And our Lord, knowing our weakness, instituted the Passover, or the Lord's Supper, as his gracious provision that could correct our forgetfulness and distractedness. So that once every month, well, there is no rule as to when, but every time we observe the Lord's Supper, we get to proclaim to one another the greatness of Jesus and his sacrificial love for us. That's why verse 26 would say, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But we need to recognize that it's more than recalling the past. The Lord's Supper is a way of remembering. Re dash member it is to reconnect this is my uh, my arm is a member of my body and my forgetfulness i disconnect many times the truth of who god is and what he has done for me to remember is to reconnect to this truth and so the lord's supper brings the redemption that jesus accomplished on the cross of calvary into the present 
We bring the past into the present in, re in remembering. And the act of eating the bread and drinking the wine is meant to bring home to us through sight, through touch, through taste that his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Now we, we understand the elements do not become Jesus' body and blood. That would be cannibalism. Rather, our partaking of the elements signifies our participation in Christ. You see that? Look at chapter 10, verse 16. It's interesting because Paul references the Lord's Supper in the context of the Corinthian believers or some Corinthian believers participating in feasts at uh, pagan temples. And in verse 16, his argument is this. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? He's saying that our partaking of the elements is a sign of our union with Christ. There's something even more important. That Christ is spiritually present with us as we partake of these elements through his spirit. And that's why his concern is, look at verse um, 19 and 20, chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So that there's more than simply remembering that's going on when we are partaking. The Corinthian believers, in partaking of the pagan feasts, were unknowingly communing with demons, as it were. Which indicates to us that in our observance of the supper, we are actually communing with our Savior. He is present with us through His Spirit, and we are communing with Him. As we partake, trusting that Christ sacrificed Himself for us, the Spirit is bringing home the depths of Christ's love for you and me. So yes, when we were drinking those, when we were using those, um, the, the edible styrofoam and the, I don't know what that juice was, <laughs> liquid purple. <sighs> it wasn't about how it tasted or didn't taste like anything. There was a spiritual communion for our souls going on. So as horrible as it was, it was for our benefit. Because the Spirit was taking our observance and using it to nourish our souls the way bread and wine would nourish the body. As Tabiti Anyabwili would say, the Lord's Supper belongs to the weak Christian. No one comes to the table in unblemished worthiness or undiminished strength. We come to the table in need. We come to the table fresh from battles with sin, discouragement, unbelief, and the world. We need to be fed again 
We need to receive the sustenance that Christ affords. By faith, we receive the nourishment we need as we imbibe the benefits of Jesus' atoning work for sinners and weaklings. That's why we need the supper. It is God's gift that strengthens our souls by presenting us with Christ and all his benefits. It is our time to taste and see that the Lord is good. But it doesn't stop there. Paul also points out in chapter 10, verse 17, that the Lord's Supper is a sign of our unity in Christ. See, our union with Christ means that we are also joined to one another. We are one body. And unfortunately, this is why he had to write this section in chapter 11. Because the Corinthian believers were dividing the church along class lines because they weren't sharing their food with each other. And their selfishness meant that they were still acting according to the class-conscious norms of Roman society and not according to the gospel. See, during those days, the church didn't have buildings. They would meet in the homes of believers. And usually, the people who had homes big enough to accommodate the church, maybe about 40 to 60 people, would be the higher class, the, peop- the believers who were from a higher class. But this is what would happen. The people of a higher class would gather in the dining room. Do we have that picture? Yes. So you see the dining room? That's where the higher class people would sit. And it's called the triclinium because you usually had three couches where they would recline and eat their food. And the food in the dining room would be of higher quality and abundance. Think the keg. All you can eat. Mm, Yes. Sounds good. Except that the other people, the lower class people, the slaves, the plebes, the freedmen, would be outside in the garden or the atrium, eating what little food they had, if any. Imagine sharing a happy meal made up of McNuggets among 40 people. So Paul says, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. You're having a private dinner. And to help you understand, here's how the ancient writer Lucian would describe how Roman dinners would look from the standpoint of a lower class person. You eat oysters fattened from the lake while I suck a mussel through a hole in the shell. You get mushrooms while I get hog funguses. Golden with fat, a turtle dove gorges you with its bloated rump. But a magpie that has died in its cages is set before me. You see the disparity. And so what was happening was this, the feasting of the upper class people was rubbing their social distinctions in the face of their fellow believers. And that callous disregard for their fellow believers denied the gospel. It's like observing Lord's Supper during, segreg- uh, during the time when there was segregation in the U.S., It was denying the gospel because every believer is a debtor to grace. And we stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. 
The gospel transcends social status, race, language, and all other distinctions to unite us as children of God. This is where liberals, conservatives, NDP, and people from the Green Party, if they are followers of Jesus, can come together and actually shake hands and not spit. And that's why Paul warns against partaking in an unworthy manner. I used to think that partaking unworthily meant that I would partake with unconfessed sin. And there is truth to that. We partake unworthily when we tolerate sin in our lives and we deny the gospel when we excuse or deny our sin and then partake of the Lord's Supper. That is true. But within this context, we need to remember that partaking unworthily means that you're not discerning the body of Christ. You are, you are being uncaring of the body. Look at verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. To discern the body is to reflect the love of Christ for his people. And so here's where we need to examine ourselves. When we partake without caring for our brothers, or when we partake while harboring resentment or critical attitudes towards our brothers, we are partaking unworthily. Let's drill it down to something very basic. If you, a husband, had a fight with your wife just before coming to church, and you haven't settled matters with her, and you go to Lord's Supper, you're partaking unworthily because you're still angry with her, and she's still angry with you. See, that's what partaking unworthily is about here, and this is a serious matter because, as David Pryor points out, Partaking unworthily means you place yourself not in the company of those who are sharing in the benefits of his passion, but in the company of those who are re responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. You're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. No wonder it calls forth disciplinary judgment. Notice what Paul says. Verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Not during, he's not talking about falling asleep during the sermon. He's talking about people who have actually died. That's how serious this is. And so it is important as we prepare ourselves for this coming Sunday, when we observe the Lord's Supper, it is, it is important that we examine our relationships, examine our attitudes toward people in the church, and repent of any wrong attitude towards a brother or a sister, and to seek reconciliation where necessary. You know, I, I love this text because even here, God is reminding us of his grace. Notice verse 32. You see the nevertheless 
of Paul. The Lord's Supper is not meant to be a scary time. He says, nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. See, even there, God is acting in grace because when he disciplines people who partake unworthily, it's not to condemn them. It's actually to save them from condemnation. And so such grace that God gives challenges us and encourages us to observe the supper properly because it is actually given for our good. And that's why Paul ends it by saying in verse 33, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. And um, scholars would say the, the proper translation is probably to welcome one another or embrace one another because to eat together in that culture is actually to accept one another. That was the beauty of the gospel. It brought together nobles and slaves at the same table so that they would eat together in fellowship. And by that eating, declare that they are both on the same level, accepted by Jesus Christ. And so for us, our partaking of the supper properly means that we need to be considerate of one another and care for one another's needs. Not because we like each other, but because Christ died and rose again for you and me. And our eating says that we share in that same blood, and that is the bond that brings us together. Our common allegiance to Christ transcends any difference in class, in education, in color, in language, and yes, even in politics. And that's why Paul challenges us to examine ourselves. And no, it's not to determine whether or not you and I are worthy, because let's take it for granted, we are unworthy failures in this life. Nothing's going to change that, no matter how hard we try. But you notice what Paul says, verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. There is no notion, as far as Paul is concerned, of not partaking after examining. Because we are to partake to signify our trust in Christ, who is our righteousness. Brian Vickers would put it this way. What we all need to hear is this. You're exactly right. You are not worthy. But Christ is. And his body and blood broken and shed for you make you worthy. And by faith, he abides with you. Now come, confess and repent of your sins and proclaim his death until he comes. Again, the supper isn't a guilt trip. It is a time to come before our glorious, holy God, to confess our continuing self-centeredness and to acknowledge in the same breath our continuing need for Christ, both individually and corporately. 
We lay hold of the promises of the gospel and God responds by offering us his table and says, absolutely, you are forgiven. Eat and drink. Christ died so that you may partake freely. As Daryl Dash would say, this is the feast of God for the people of God. Because you see, the Lord's Supper serves as a seal of God's covenant commitment to us. Remember what Jesus says. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. That's why we say that the supper is only for those who are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. We are invited, commanded to come to the table as those who are trusting in Jesus, as those who are imperfect, yet eternally bound to our Savior in covenant relationship, accepted by the one who lays the meal for us, precisely because he died and rose again for us. And in inviting us to these elements, to partake of these elements, he is saying, my covenant commitment to you has not changed. I am still your God. You're still my people. Receive by faith my promise of unfailing love and mercy in the face of your failures and folly. Because the Lord knows our frame. He knows we're like the prodigal son. We wander away and we want to earn our father's favor back. But he throws us this feast to reassure us. That's not why I accept you. I accept you because Christ died for you. And because Christ died for you so that you may be bound to me in covenant relationship, I will never give up on you. You're mine forever. And I will always keep bringing you back. Because I am committed to you. Unconditionally. Perpetually. I will never cast you off. That is His grace. That is what He's saying to us as we partake. And such grace then deserves a corresponding response of commitment. James Hamilton builds on the words of the scholar Richard Hayes. He says, Paul is calling for a conversion of the imagination, an imaginative projection of their lives into the framework of the Pentateuchal narrative. Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to understand that they live at the turning point of the ages. They are to see in their own experience the typological fulfillment of the biblical narrative. The upshot of this is that the Corinthians who still prize the wisdom of the world are oblivious to God's apocalyptic delegitimization of their symbolic world. In other words, Paul evidently intends the Corinthian Christians to identify themselves as redeemed slaves who follow Paul as he follows Christ in giving himself for others. In their behavior at the Lord's Supper, the Corinthians are denying this identity and living out another, the one native to Roman Corinth, rather than the Jerusalem above. See, the Lord's Supper is meant to reshape 
your imagination and mine. To change our self-understanding. To recognize that we are citizens of heaven and slaves of Christ. Called to proclaim his excellencies. And so our partaking challenges us to live, to please him and not ourselves or other people. It is the compelling love of Christ that grips us so that we live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for us died and rose again. And that narrative of covenant relationship should shape our lives. And since we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, the supper orients us beyond the present to the future consummation. When he brings the new creation into its fullness and you and I will receive our inheritance. And the supper in reminding us that this Jesus who died for us rose again and is coming again. It then reassures us that God will complete the work that he has begun in us. He will transform us into the image of Christ who died and rose again for us. And we will one day enjoy the fullness of that covenant promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. And all that is wrong will be made right. And we partake of the supper in hope. Because God is confirming to us by his spirit that he will keep his promise. And that is the hope that enables us to serve his purposes faithfully in this fallen world. And in the midst of our failures, it is this hope that Christ gives us to say, yes, I know you've failed. I'm telling you to get up because there is a day coming when you will no longer fail because I'm coming again. And when you see me, you will be like me, fully pleasing to my Father, just as I am. That's what enables us to continue in the midst of this fallen world. To sum up, baptism and the Lord's Supper present to us Christ and all his benefit. Through them, God acts in grace and love toward us as we receive them by faith. And the Spirit causes these signs of the gospel to bear fruit in our lives. At the root, they remind us that we are and always be dependent on Jesus. And praise God, he will never fail us. They are signs, tokens, seals of God's unfailing commitment to you and me. So as we partake of these elements, let us look to Christ. And let's not wait for the Lord's Supper. Even now, let us look to Christ as we enjoy his provision for our souls with joy and gratitude. Our remembrance of Christ enables us to walk backwards into the future with hope that motivates our joyful, persevering service to our faithful God. Let us pray. Father, thank you.
Thank you that you, the infinite, eternal, omnipotent, holy God, who cannot bear sin, have chosen to love us. Unconditionally, with an everlasting love. And the second person of the triune God chose to humble himself to become a fully human being like us in every way except without sin so that he may lay down his life for us as our sacrifice and substitute. So that he may rise again that in union with him through faith, we might be reconciled to you. Accepted as sons, joint heirs with Christ. And we thank you that though we, your people, are foolish and flawed and all too forgetful, Yet we thank you that you do not give up on us, that because you have chosen to love us with an everlasting love, you continue to sustain us, and you've given us the Lord's Supper and baptism to keep bringing us back to the cross. Oh Lord, we pray, forgive our forgetfulness. Forgive our lack of love for you, that we manifest in our lack of love for our brethren. And teach us as we go back to the cross every time we partake of the supper. Help us to reconnect with your unfailing love so that your love for us might teach us first to love you back, to grow our love for you, so that we, in love for you, might love our brothers. And we thank you that you are doing this in our lives through your Spirit. Help us to lean into your work so that we, your people, may know, may learn to love one another the way you love us. So that when people see us, they will know that we are your people because we love one another. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.